everybody to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm here with Howard the Great. No, I'd like you to change Howard the Great to, you know, <laughs> Howard, the, Howard the Magnificent. <laughs> Howard the Magnificent. You know, I think I it can, sounds better. I'll work that in. I'll try that next week. HTM. How okay, are you? Ahead. How are you, HTM? Great. Are you feeling good? Oh, it's fantastic. We just came back from a wonderful uh, two-day conference of independent school leaders and and working with them on decision making and uh, and also being effective communicators, communicating strategically, and it was just so. These are these are people that are so excited about their work in independent schools, and also they've got a lot of challenges in terms of how they move forward. We are taking a new angle on an old saw this week on the show. Regular listeners know we love talking about the complexity that comes with big change projects and marshalling resources to do something really grand, something brave, something that can positively impact the fabric of the culture of your institution. It's it's an incredibly difficult thing. So today we're talking about the impact of culture and environment on our ability to drive complex change projects, to, to make complex decisions to uh, to address uh, confusion and loyalty. To help us to do that, we've invited Ron Friedman to join us. Ron is an award-winning psychologist and author of The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. His research has appeared on NPR and The New York Times and Washington Post and Boston Globe and so on and so on. It's everywhere, his research. Uh, I, I found one of his latest pieces on Forbes and immediately passed it around to the team here. There's so much to talk about today. We are thrilled to have Ron Friedman on the show. Welcome, Ron. Thanks very much. This book, uh, it is a wonderful read for anyone looking, I think, not only to design a great workplace, but even for those of us who are kind of team nomads, this is a great read for helping me to understand why I love the teams I love and how to suss out and craft more opportunities just like them. What I found so interesting uh, about the, the book, a book on building great workplaces, is that it opens with a love letter to failure. Uh, the, the whole first chapter is dedicated to failure, and it, it made me think about, uh, Howard, one of the things that you talk about often, which is, which is confusion and, and letting yourself be in a space of confusion and, and experience failure. It's the start of learning. I wonder if I could tee off between you two gentlemen to talk about how we might rationalize this experience of failure and confusion and how that makes for a better Workplace. Yeah, so how I'd, you know, I'm really excited to have you on the show, Ron. So thank you so much. Uh, The framing where I come at from this is that uh, I use sort of a a model, a very simple model that is about people going from contentment to denial to confusion and then hopefully to renewal. And in that transition from denial or being pissed off about a change that maybe they didn't have control over. Uh, when you move out of that space, you don't move to everything's fine. You move to how do I engage in this? And very often, I think in that process, you got to be willing to fail. And in the absence of either your boss telling you that or you have this sort of predisposed to I can't fail, I think a lot of people get stuck in either reflecting back on the way it was or just being frustrated about the fact that they can't navigate forward because they don't have that room to fail. And I can tell you when people have that permission, in my experience, they feel such a relief that it's okay to do that. So I'm really curious in your research and your working with people, 
how do you approach this conversation of failure, especially if your boss is not the kind of person who encourages you to come from that place? Well, I think what's really critical is reframing the word failure, the experience of failure as a path to learning new things. And, you know, I talk about in the book uh, on how critical it is to fail if you're going to learn new things. Uh, you know, if you think about the way that toddlers learn to walk. Now, this is this is something that's a, a topic that's a little bit far afield from building a great workplace, but I think it's it's relevant in that when toddlers learn how to walk, it's by only only by accepting that they're going to fall down by taking a, one or two steps that they have the courage to then experiment and then use the feedback to improve their skills. And that same process is something that we can all learn from and apply to every aspect of life. And if you look at the people who are really at the top of their fields, for example, in the in the world of sports, they tend to fail more often than the average player. So Babe Ruth has the most career had the most career strikeouts while having also the most career home runs. Uh, the leader in basketball of most missed shots is Kobe Bryant. In professional football, the player with the greatest number of interceptions is Brett Favre. Um, and the same is true for businesses. Businesses like Google and Apple, they tend to have a tremendous run of failures. Uh, Google, for example, uh, failed with Google Wave, Google Buzz, Google Reader. Apple failed with Apple One, Apple Two, the Lisa before they got to the iPad and the iPhone. So, really, you know, if you're looking to innovate and form an organization where people are performing at a, the highest levels, you have to make room for the fact that they're going to make mistakes. And if you don't, what's going to happen is they're going to be very conservative in the way that they behave. They're less likely to be creative. And then when mistakes finally do happen, they're going to cover them up because they don't want others to find out. So that's a dangerous problem to have from an organizational perspective. If people are not admitting the mistakes that they're making, then as a manager, you can't fix them. You know, Ron, I, I think what you're what you're pointing to it's not only very important, but the thing that strikes me about it that I'd love your thoughts about is when I get in there with individuals, either through individual coaching or with teams and talk about this, and people are being honest uh, about where they are. I think overwhelmingly, though, there isn't a permission that uh, organiza- either people, for the most part, give themselves to fail. You know, I, I was just in a in a retreat and I was talking to a group and they commented about how important it is to get it right. And and this idea of getting it right is something that they even admitted it wasn't that their boss was telling them you got to get it right the first time. It's this like innate sense of I got to get it right. I can't fail at this. It's the pressure I'm putting in myself. And when I when I think about that kind of behavior, how do we get people to step out of that place and have it be okay? Because whether or not your boss gives you permission, I still think people struggle with uh, their willingness to make a mistake. Yeah, and for good reason, right? Because if they make too many mistakes, they're going to be out, on, on, out looking for a new job. And I think that's a natural reaction. And we can't really expect employees to take risks on their own unless it's a behavior that is rewarded at the top. And here's what I mean. Here, so let's say you're uh, part of an administration and you're looking for the people on your team to take more risks, but they're they're not. They're too conservative. What do you do? Well, here, here are a number of things. One is model that behavior. 
behavior. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to want others to take risks, you have to demonstrate that you're willing to take the risks yourself and also talk about some of the mistakes you've made over the course of your career with others. Don't pretend to be perfect because if you pretend to be perfect, everyone else is going to try to be perfect as well and that can be problematic. The other thing is to very explicitly provide some rewards when people take some risks that don't work out. So if someone is taking a risk that um, is, you know, if they failed because they've taken, uh, they're experimenting with new things or they're involved in exper- in uh, uh, intelligent risk taking, that's something you can reward. So in the book, I talk about some of these organizations that have set up the heroic failure award. So when someone on their team tries something, it doesn't work out, they still get recognized for it um, in, in a way that's a v- very positive. And I love so- it. Yeah, and that's the way you have to think about it is you have to provide some of that positive reward because if the if the reward for failing is simply, well, all right, sorry, Pete, you, it didn't work out for you, That that's not an incentive, right? Yeah, but, and, and it's almost, you, you, you know, you can see some institutions say, well, it's not, it's not like we're going to fire you. You can go ahead and fail, but we're not going to fire you. But that doesn't necessarily build new and, and enriched confidence either. That's right. You know, and, and the other aspect of this is, again, that portion about people covering up their failures if um, it's not acceptable to take risks. And so that's why you see companies in the pharmaceutical industries like Merck and Eli Lilly offering their employees additional stock options if their project fails because they want they want their scientists to um, – Come, you know, come forward and say, my project, my research project's not working out. It's time to reassign me to a different project because if they're not comfortable admitting that a project isn't working out, they're going to continue to work on it for years, and that's going to cost the company money. Well, that's a, such a culture change. I, I, I love where you're going. That ex- that's such an amazing example of a institution putting a cultural practice in place that gets people from a behavior standpoint to practice this and see that it's safe to do it. Yeah. When I think about higher education and how little experimentation actually happens, I mean, it, it happens in the classroom, right? Uh, you know, great faculty create um, lots of innovation and getting in, and we, we espouse the idea of creating these students that are entrepreneurial and innovative, but you look under the covers and you see how they try and get work done. It is a one or a zero. You either figured out how to get it right and we're going to go to the end and we're not going to stop and look at it and say, how do we move this forward? So I struggle with, and I'm listening to you saying, how do I encourage the leaders who are who, who we're working with, whether they be board chairs or presidents or even, um, you know, people that sit on the cabinet, to go back and say, you need to shift the focus so that people really do find a way to come forward when something's failing. So what are some practical things that a leader could do uh, that you would say would be helpful? Because that's the kind of thing I think people will be would love to hear from you. Well, we talked about modeling the behaviors in conversation. So talking about some mistakes that you've made and the learnings you've gained from them. The other is providing some explicit reward around people who take intelligent risks. Uh, and then the third, and I think this is something that is uh, applicable to just about any organization, is when you have a program that people want to be involved in. So the example I used in The Best Place to Work is this company, HCL Technology, has an internal leadership program. 
And in order to get into the internal leadership program, you as an applicant have to write your failure CV, not the CV of all the great things ah, you've accomplished. Nice. You have to have That's a brilliant. list of all the things that you haven't done well. And then here's the critical thing is you have to identify what you learned as a function of having fallen short on that activity. And that what that does is that gets people thinking about failures, reframing it as learning opportunities, but also um, encourages them to think when a failure happens about what are some things that I can adjust to improve my performance in the future. I love that. You know, it's interesting because I have a, one of the things I talked about yesterday in the decision-making model is that at some point in the decision-making model, you want to look at what does success and what does failure look like? So, and when I show examples of what failure looks like, trying to put together a, a forward-thinking, innovative university where they're going to be focusing on the right things, the failure, uh, you know, loss of morale, uh, all of the things that people are afraid of. And the group looked at it and I said, fundamentally, failure or the anticipation of failure are fears. If you're, if, as opposed, and, and when you can look at those failures, then you are in a position to, in a sense, put them aside. So I'm curious if in your talking with people, uh, how much of this thing, this area of failure is really about just getting people to articulate their fears and then they're able to move on? Well, I think it's it's it takes more than just being aware of your fears. I think the critical thing is not just saying, okay, I'm going to start taking all kinds of risks, right? Because then people are acting in a way that maybe isn't responsible in their jobs, but rather um, really mining those failures for learning opportunities. That's the critical yeah, piece yeah, is, is, is looking at the feedback that that failure gives you. You know, there's this example in the book on Wayne Gretzky and how when he's practicing before, when he practiced before a game, oftentimes his fellow teammates would find him falling flat on his face on the ice. And it wasn't because he didn't know how to skate. Obviously, he's Wayne Gretzky. He's one of the best in the world. Uh, but rather because he, he was constantly pushing himself past the point where he was comfortable. And mm -hmm. it's in that continuing to push yourself to try new things. That's when the learning happens is when you push yourself just beyond what you currently are comfortable with. That is, a, that is a wonderful way to, to frame it. And I think it's a, it really points to the lesson that we can learn as managers, leaders, and institutions that, you know, in general, as human beings, we are notoriously bad at dealing with sorrow and discomfort. We're just bad at it. And that's why we have managers who say, okay, you screwed up and we're just going to move on. We're just going to move past it, and it, it's just it, it's like it never happened. We'll go, and tomorrow's a new day. But that's not really where the work begins, uh, if, if I'm gathering what you're saying. It's that the, the work really begins on the next day when you actually stop and say, okay, what, what did go wrong? What can we learn uh, about doing this? And don't just shelve the discomfort of dealing with, with failure. Yeah, and a critical question that you can ask uh, is not – whose fault is this, right? You don't want to be, uh, you, you don't want to look at the past, rather you want to direct your attention to the future by asking something along the lines of what's one thing we can do better next time? And maybe just mm. go around the room where everybody gets their opportunity to share their insights and now everybody is looking forward to the next opportunity for improvement rather than uh, the discomfort of the failures. In the development of the book and the research and talking to people on the ready, what were some things that surprised you that you learned that you think is um, 
would be helpful for people to be thinking about? Yeah, actually a lot. I mean, there are so many things that go into building a great workplace experience that people are just not aware of. And one of them is, I think we can probably file this under the category of workplace satisfaction is no longer about what you do between the hours of nine to five. It's also how you handle yourself outside of work and on the weekends and whether or not you're making opportunities for yourself to restock your mental energy. Mm. Uh, and uh, one critical way is exercise. And you know, we often think of exercise as something we do to look good or perhaps to, to be healthy. But the reality is that if you look at the research, one of the main benefits of exercise is that it improves your performance um, intellectually. So we, we get blood flowing to the brain. We're better able to focus. We activate the memory regions of the brain, which enables us to soak up information more quickly. And it puts us in a better mood, which is critical if you're thinking about collaborating with colleagues or if, you're owning, if you own a business, um, getting your – getting your employees to connect with their customers because once they're in a positive move, that tends to spill over to everyone else. And so exercise, making room for exercise in our day is fundamental to being good at our jobs. Well, Pete, you're going to, you, you and I are going to the gym after this, right? Y yes. I'm actually doing crunches right now. <laughs> <laughs> the other part of this is, is friendships. You know, we think about building a great workplace. We think about giving people the right equipment, the right training, a living wage, but making sure that people feel connected to their colleagues in a meaningful way is just as necessary for them to be uh, engaged in their work than just about any other aspect. And it's in part because we have a, f a fundamental psychological need for feeling connected to the people around us. And when we feel like our, we're valued and we have those close connections, we're better able to focus on our work. We don't have to pay quite as much attention about whether or not we're fitting in. We're more willing to ask for help when we need it. We're more yeah. open about sharing feedback with other people as well. So all of that is critical to performing at our best. All right. So, so you got me thinking about something I have to raise then around this uh, friendship because – Obviously, and I feel the same way too. I want to come to work and 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 enjoy the people I'm working around. And we're doing a project right now at an institution, and one of the tasks of the project team. So rather than it just being a top-down approach, here's all the changes we're going to put in place. Uh, we have helped them put together cross-functional teams of administrators, faculty, and students looking at innovative ways that they could be changing how they do work, right? So now one team is looking at uh, doing some kind of merging of departments, right? So that we, we're, we're being very ineffective in having three different centers that do for the most part the same things. So this team is talking about it, and I, and I sat in on a meeting, and they admitted that the problem they have in really exploring this is they're afraid how they're going to affect one of their peers. And I said, this is the inherent challenge of you build these friendships, you build this sense of loyalty to your peers, and then you're asked to look at doing things better or different, and it involves people. And people are reluctant to step forward and say, I'm going to offer anything up that might affect anybody around me that I know in a negative way. And this, to me, is a dilemma. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. How do you, how do you reconcile this desire to have it be a great place to work and friendship, but also get people 
to be willing to look at themselves and be a bit more selfless in the work? It's a great question. Um, I think that there's a fundamental difference between feeling connected to others in a meaningful way and um, making strong leadership decisions. I mean, I don't yes. think that one necessarily uh, precludes the other. Uh, and just because we feel connected to our colleagues doesn't mean that we should use that as an excuse or cover for making important leadership decisions that benefit the institution. Yeah, but what I'm suggesting here, and this is the this is the area where maybe this is the part of the project that just is very hard and almost unrealistic. We're asking these individuals on teams to make recommendations to leadership that leadership will then decide what they want to do. People are having trouble even making recommendations or suggesting ideas that might affect their peers in a negative way. And what I say in front of this group is, you know, what's right for the institution? Have that be your conversation. And some people can do this, but many people are reluctant to put forward things that will affect anybody around them in a negative way. And and because the alternative is, is that we say, you know what? We're not going to expect you to do any of that. It's going to be a top-down approach, uh, and leaders going to figure out what needs to happen. And but I, the dilemma with that is, we find ourselves feeling like we're disconnected from being part of the solution, and and that's the place I'm trying to find ways to get greater comfort level of individuals to say what's right for the institution, even if it might affect me or people around me in a negative way. You understand what I'm saying? I do, and I think that. It's a tricky situation, particularly if you're asking people to make recommendations in front of their peers that re relate to how those their peers are affected. And so there, I think, and I'm sure you've thought about this, is introducing some level of anonymity. But more than that is getting people to think beyond what's going to happen today or tomorrow or next month, yes. but rather thinking five years down the road. Let's ask it in a way where suppose the organization is functioning at its absolute best. What would that look like? I love it. And, and then work backwards. What? what exactly. How? How does that different from how we're working today? And it's maybe really that depersonalizing it. it. Precisely. Yeah, beautiful. One of the things that you um, you know you talk about in in this realm of friendship and socialization that that I think is a constant challenge is figuring out how to bring cross functional teams together uh, and establish that same kind of camaraderie that they might have in their sort of home kind of environment. Do you have any thoughts on, on how, like building a, a team or department uh, is, is one thing, but bringing people together to do something big and incredible when they, they may not, uh, you know, have any, um, uh, any particular kind of innate, let's say, loyalty uh, to that project? What does that look like? Yeah, you know, there's this uh, portion in the book where I talk about this quote from Tom Kelly at IDEO where he says, "What anytime you have a they in an organization, you have a problem. So what he means by that is when any, anyone in an organization starts talking about people in another department as they need us to do this or they want us to do this, that means that they, they don't view that group as part of us. And so what you really need to do if you're looking to build a strong uh, team is make sure that everyone views each other as part being on, on the same team. And here I think it's really useful to look at the psychology of friendship. So what are the factors that turn strangers into close friends? And I talk in the book about three main factors that scientists have uncovered over the years. One of them is 
proximity, so feeling uh, like we're, we have an opportunity to be close to one another um, and, and have interpersonal exchanges. That leads to the development of friendship. A second one is similarity, so knowing what you and I have in common leads us to form closer bonds. And then the, the final one is self-disclosure. So when I tell you something personal about me that perhaps isn't work-related and you do the same about you, now we're more likely to bond with one another. So what you want to do is create experiences where people have the opportunity to be, to be proximal, share some similarities and self-disclose. And there, I think it's really important to invest in some after-work activities where people can relate to one another in a natural setting. So icebreakers and all of those sorts of activities that are group bonding ex- activities don't always work because people feel awkward doing them. But when you invite your employees to say, you know, nominate some after work activities that you'd be interested in. And so let's say one person nominates volleyball as an activity he's interested in and someone else says, I'm interested in cooking. If you can get four or five or six people from different teams interested in an activity, then provide some funding for that activity to take place. People are going to have those natural settings where they can interact with one another and connect over activities that they are naturally drawn to rather than feeling awkwardly pushed into it by their administrators. You know, it's so funny. It's, it's, when you hear what you're saying, it becomes so obvious, but sometimes the most obvious thing is the thing we do the least. And, and what you're talking about there, which I think is just remarkably simple yet important, um, but we don't do, is you're, you're, you're trying to find a way to get ownership Um, from individuals as opposed to trying to guess what they need. And, you know, it's so interesting how a lot of times organizations, I see this in in a lot of workplaces, they'll have a group outing and that group outing will involve everybody go to the baseball game and bring your families or we're going to send everybody to the zoo and have it open after work hours so that everybody can go themselves. And then what ends up happening is people are doing um, the tasks individually rather than Uh, interacting with one another. And so it's really critical when you're looking for an activity, not just to get one that people are interested in, but ideally one that involves a superordinate goal, meaning that um, success is only achieved when we work together. So when you have an office volleyball team, that's one approach, or an office band, these are activities that where we need one another in order to succeed. And And when we have those experiences, we tend to draw closer to one another as well. That's wonderful. It's it is wonderful, and it's it's one of those things I keep reflecting on as you, I hear you say it. When when I see a, a client organization that invests heavily in these sorts of activities that do it really well, uh, it's very difficult for that instinct not to kick in that says, "Oh my goodness, that's frivolous." Like look at look at that investment. That's investment that could go toward keeping the lights on. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and yet. You know, it, how hard is it for us to look at these organizations? I think it's you know we it's easy to put kind of Silicon Valley on a on a, a, a kind of a platform here for this discussion. But how easy is it to look at these organizations and say, look at some of these some of these perks around socialization, around after work activities that that drive these superordinate goals, as you say, uh, they really pay dividends in the workplace. They pay dividends on projects. They pay dividends to to achieving great results through incredible creativity and productivity on projects. 
culture and they build trust between people. They develop a common language. So now when you and I are working on a project, I know what, you know, what, what Pete is like. And so when Pete makes a comment, I'm not, I'm less likely to take it in a, in a negative, interpret it in a negative fashion because now I've had that experience and comfort level with you. And then in a lot of companies, I don't think this is quite an issue uh, in academics, but in a lot of industries, loyalty to the organization and turnover is a big issue. When people feel connected to one another, they're less likely to look for a new job because now they're more loyal to their colleagues. Um, and also, you know, when it comes to motivation, if I am if I don't do a good enough job, I'm letting down my friends. I'm not just letting down my manager. I'm letting down my friends. So now I'm more motivated to want to do uh, a better job. So it, it pays off in, in a number of ways. And I think it's one of the most overlooked factors when it comes to building an extraordinary workplace. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know the thing, only thing I'll add to you uh, on that one is that I think that I've discovered that when people end up deciding they want to leave, uh, because they're unhappy, they're often leaving their boss, not the organization, mm -hmm. because their boss didn't give them sort of the opportunity or the connection that they needed. So that's where what you were saying earlier, you got to lead by example. Because if you don't start with yourself and become that leader that you want or, or to get people to follow, uh, people are going to step out. But it's not because of the organization. You ask them, why'd you leave? It's like, I was unhappy with who I worked with. Um, and that's often the thing that they're fearful of when they get a new, a new boss. So it keeps pointing back to leading by example. Well, it's such a fascinating thing because, Howard, I mean, to that point, loyalty to your colleagues and, you know, in this case, let's just say friends, uh, you know, creating a strong team equates to, I think, loyalty to the mission, something we talk about an awful lot. That's right. And and reminding, you know, and Pete, what's, you know, this is another whole topic for us to talk about is this idea of being loyal to the mission is a, uh, is a function of reminding people or being aware that many people are not connected to the mission. They're not even asked to answer the question, how is your work contributing to the mission? Uh, they just have their heads down. So that's another area for, for leaders to recognize why it's so important to have mission connect with two, three layers down the organization. And that's often missing. This was a, a fantastic conversation. And, and I, I know I have walked away with a number of good nuggets. I think we could, we could talk for much, much longer. But in the interests of, of everybody's schedule and attention, I'm going to wrap it up. And then we got to go to the gym. I mean, exactly. Now Ron's exactly. Really clear. Well, I'm, I'm exhausted now from all the crunches <laughs> and, and toe lifts I've been doing here. Uh, Ron Friedman, thank you so much for your time and, and attention to, to join us here on Navigating Change today. It was a great, great talking to you. Oh, truly my pleasure. The book is, once again, The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. Uh, it is available at fine booksellers everywhere, uh, and you can find it. Where would you like to send people to the uh, the book website is the best place for that? Sure. You can you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. But yes, thebestplacetoworkbook.com is the website for the book, and Ignite80 is the name of my organization, so Ignite80.com. Excellent, excellent. Again, Ron Friedman, thank you so much for your time. Uh, uh, and joining us here on Navigating Change. Thank you. Howard, uh, final comments, my friend. I think that the work that you're doing, Ron, is the kind of thing that 
we people underestimate how important it is to pay attention to not just what we're doing, but why we're doing it. And and I think that what you've done is you've unpacked this conversation that we, we talk about in many ways in a superficial way, and you have really practical ideas. And I know I'm going to take some of your ideas forward and, and share some of this. So so thank you very much for uh, for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, everybody, for listening and downloading the show and subscribing. You can uh, learn more about the show at tybalink.com. You can subscribe for free in iTunes. But, you know, if iTunes is cumbersome, we've gotten some con- comments from folks who say, what is this iTunes? I know I'm a nerd, so I kind of live in that space. But for those of you who are not nerds like me, uh, go ahead and just head over to tybalink.com. There's a subscribe field right on the front page there. You can add your name and email address, and we'll just send you an email when there's a new episode. So if you want to keep up with Navigating Change and the great interviews that uh, we have done and continue to do, uh, just head over to Tybalink, subscribe to the mailing list, and we'll just send you a quick note each week. Very quick note. No clutter, just a quick note. That's all we've got. Thanks, everybody. On behalf of Howard Teibel and Ron Friedman, I'm Pete Wright, and we'll catch you next week on Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel, Inc. <laughs>